So I am back in the little hut in on the farm uh, where I was recording the first episode of this series from and it is blowing an absolute gale outside uh, as Bean was talking about when I interviewed Bean. And uh, so we've got some blankets up to try and deal with a little bit of the wind. So you might get a bit of background noise, but that's the kind of scenario we're, we're in here at the moment. And I'm very lucky today to be chatting to Maddie. Maddie, I mentioned you in the first episode talking about the jungle because you were actually doing the video at the end of the play, which was a moment that for me, part of what got me involved in being here. And now it's funny, we've kept on bumping into each other over the last sort of year and a half. Here we are, basically. And so I've already said what your role is, but if you want to just just introduce yourself, how did you... <laughs> what am I doing here? Good yeah, question. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. How, how, did you, how did you come to be in Calais in the first place? Yeah, so uh, I'm Maddie, as you said, I'm sat opposite Toilet James. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's infamous at this stage. Um, yeah, so I work for Help Refugees. I'm field manager for Northern France for Help Refugees. And I first came to Calais as a volunteer. So I came out initially for three weeks that turned into three months and now it's turned into three years and <laughs> I'm still here. So um, yeah, a bit of background about Help Refugees and what we're doing. It was founded by three friends who had heard that there was a situation in Calais. They'd heard that there were displaced people and they wanted to raise some money for refugees. And they started a hashtag online, Help Calais, and their goal was to raise a thousand pounds in a week. Um, and this hashtag went viral and at the end of the week they'd raised £56,000 and they had a storage container in uh, in London that had thousands and thousands of Amazon parcels arriving at it a day because there was a wish list online and it was all just kind of getting a bit out of control. So they got some volunteers and a van and drove over here because step number one is always to <laughs> turn up with the money that you were wanting to help with. And they were expecting to find the big aid organisations on the ground. So UNHCR, Oxfam, UNICEF, Save the Children. And there were already about 3,000 people living in the what became the jungle camp at that point. And they found that none of those organisations were there. So there was a local French partner, Lauberge de Migrant, and they were also just retired people kind of cooking for people in their kitchens and washing people's clothes in their own washing machines. It was like very much a civil society response. It was just local French people helping other people. And Help Refugees was born from there. So we got a warehouse with our French partners and started getting volunteers and started a distribution system in the camp and started what the build programme, which built what became the jungle camp. And what happened during that time was that it was the grassroots and civil society organisations that were really the ones that were stepping in and, you know, the big INGOs were nowhere to be seen. And that's the pattern that we've seen everywhere. So... The people that set up Help Refugees then went out to Greece at the time and they were again finding that the boats that were arriving across the Mediterranean, which we were hearing about back in 2015 after Alan Kurdi's death, it was the local Greek fishermen that were dealing with people as they were arriving onto the beaches and, there were, you know, again, no big organisations in sight. So Help Refugees has kind of grown from that point and what we've seen is that the best way to support these groups rather than parachuting in is to provide funding and support and coordination to grassroots and civil society groups that exist and that's what we've done here in northern France so since the jungle was evicted in October 2016 we've stayed here ever since there's a smaller number of people but as you've said before there's still thousands of people sleeping outside and 
we're just really here to for a long time we've been running the main humanitarian operation here providing material aid but we're here to support all the projects whether that's the firewood yard whether it's specialist services for women and children for unaccompanied minors you know hot food provision legal information wi-fi phone charging kind of whatever is needed it's the grassroots response that is filling those gaps that's why I'm here I just came over as a volunteer and saw that there was amazing work being done it was really like a movement that had been grown and it was just people helping other people and I was really inspired to kind of get involved by that and I guess I feel there's a there's a duty to be here because it's the UK French border like our border is here we also have a right to be here because the border is here and it's also I would primarily say our responsibility to for there to be British people helping out in this situation it feels like a important operation to be a part of absolutely and I think something that definitely shocked me is the the amount of money that the the UK government has poured into the security systems here including not just the fences but also I believe they also put money towards the policing which is as I'm sure I mean you've been here for a few years I'm sure you've been here through some fairly serious incidents of police brutality which is which really it stuns me driving around Calais just seeing the CRS everywhere and that's quite quite concerning that that's the primary state response is there's none yeah, of those major organizations absolutely. and at times there's been more police officers than refugees in calais like it's just a disproportionately huge response funded by british taxpayers as you said so there's hundreds and hundreds of millions of pounds that have gone in over the last 10 years and even further back than that even at the beginning of this year or the beginning of 2019 there was six million pounds put in place through a kind of joint action plan trying to do cross-border collaboration and that money went on securitization of the border so drones on the beaches helicopter patrols increased dog patrols at the ports heat scanners as you said huge huge numbers of uh, amounts of fencing and police officers and it's really concerning because what we see with this is direct correlation of an increase in price of crossings for people that that money goes directly into smugglers hands basically because you're making a crossing way more dangerous and more loopholes for people to get through. So it doesn't, you know, this securitisation doesn't work. We know that it doesn't work. The situation here is not going anywhere. But what it does is it just exports the hostile environment and it makes people's lives here really, really difficult. Like, life in these campuses is, like, impossibly hard. From what I understand, just speaking to your point of the amount of money that's been poured into it, is it actually would be cheaper to do the basic uh, human rights systems and provide information and accommodation than it would be to actually provide this security response. Yeah, absolutely. Like, and there's no, there's no end point in sight. You know, I think that's the thing that feels like if we're wanting to look forward and try and find sustainable solutions. Like, if we invested this money into asylum centres where people have access to their legal rights, into proper legal representation, into basic accommodation, just so people's human rights are met, you know, warmth, shelter, food. People often say, why are people trying to get to the UK? We have to look at the push factors that are making people want to leave France. You know, it's really easy to say France is a safe country. I mean, it is for me and you, but for the people that are living outside in the camps in northern France at the moment, France isn't a safe country for them because of the police harassment and intimidation and surveillance. And money could just be spent better, basically. Like, if we spent money properly to make it hospitable rather than hostile, people are more likely to want to stay here and sort of set up set up their lives and futures. So what, if, if the situation seems so impossible, as, as it often does, 
and we have to remember the value of these simple acts as well. I think that's a really powerful thing for me coming here is just the simple acts of of being here to try and do whatever small amount we can uh, is I think is a really powerful thing. But what is the long term goal? Do you think for for help refugees at the moment? Do you know? It's a really difficult one because I guess we're now supporting projects in 14 different countries along the migration route. Um, so we fund a lot of and support a lot of projects in the Middle East and in Greece and along the Balkan route and here in France as well, as well as in the UK. And sort of wanting to look forward and think about more hopeful solutions is always masked by the fact that there's just such high levels of need in these camps. And, you know, primarily we're a humanitarian organisation. We're trying to meet those basic needs, whether it's with tents or sleeping bags or firewood to keep people warm, that sort of thing. But we do also have to be doing more forward thinking about, you know, are there ways that civil society groups can provide accommodation, for example, which is why we're sat in this amazing farm and this project Maison Sésame is a kind of group of activists who have come together to try and provide a citizen accommodation response to what's happening and more and more there are really interesting projects springing up all over Europe that we want to try and support to be able to give some more sustainable solutions. So do do you think that alongside this civil society response is it essential that there's a government response and better government response is it important to advocate and to campaign on a, on a government level as well yeah absolutely like we shouldn't we shouldn't be here right you know this is the french and british government's responsibility a with the juxtaposed controls that are in place you know the uk government has decided to put their border here in france and it's madness the millions and millions and millions of pounds that are in place from the governments to actively in one sense kind of sustain this operation to keep going there there's no forward thinking or like interesting responses being thought about there they can only know how to respond with this sort of violence and hostility but it's the responsibility of the governments on both sides to make this a a safer place to be and as soon as they start doing that and as soon as we see a response that we're okay with then you know we'll leave absolutely and as you were saying there's help refugees now working across 14 countries uh, along the route which is really interesting that one organization can be having this joined up response across the entire spectrum of of this uh, migration route but the governments kind of can't seem to organize and and have this joined up response either the only the response seems to be very different in different countries and depending on the political needs of that country is, is, is what it seems to me at least. Yeah, and it's just, you know, so many layers of bureaucracy in terms of, and you see that within the United Nations, you see that within the European Union, like, you know, the, and there's, you know, when you strip back these layers of bureaucracy, what we find is that actually this response needs people to be really fast and really flexible, which are the two things that we try to remain so people can say, oh, there's a really high need, a thousand people have just moved across the border in x point i don't know croatia or serbia for example we need support like yesterday basically and governments just can't massive ingos can't get funds out at that speed but the need is huge and if there was political will from any of these governments to really really care about people that are fleeing dangerous countries and you know it's all the rhetoric about who are these people and why are they coming into europe and stuff if they if they cared and if there was like a proper proper thought that went into the fact that you should be deeply ashamed that people are arriving on our shores in inflatable dinghies then there would be a different response that's a that's a question that keeps coming up uh, is why 
other people in Calais. Uh, one, why don't people fly into the UK and claim asylum there? And why is everyone coming to the UK? Is is often a question. And when in the UK, because we don't have any much media coverage anymore of, of the situation in Calais, mm. uh, it really disappeared after the big jungle was, was demolished. And so there's not a lot of knowledge. So are you able to answer either of those questions? Give it a go. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing is that, like, we have to keep these numbers in perspective. So relatively speaking, a tiny, tiny, tiny proportion of the number of people that arrive into Europe want to get to the UK. So that idea that, you know, if we were to, like, open our borders or if we'd, like, let down our drawbridge, then thousands of people would just flood into the UK. That's not true. Like, we're dealing with... relatively small numbers of people although they're living in really sort of dire conditions here in northern France and then the second thing is you know so a lot of people are wanting to settle in other EU countries what's happened with the Dublin regulations which is a really complicated piece of EU treaty but essentially what that does by trying to say it is more complicated than this but by trying to say that you have to claim asylum in the first safe country that you reach that puts massive pressure on the periphery countries of Europe so Greece or Italy you know the first countries that people are arriving into that puts a huge amount of pressure on them so we have to think across all of the countries in Europe and I would really emphasize that Britain has to be included in that in or out of the EU (laughs) we are still in Europe and we have to like think about what are our international responsibilities to people that are fleeing really dangerous countries how do they how do they make it safely to the UK and what there is across the whole of Europe is a huge lack of safe or legal routes of passage so people aren't flying into the UK because that's not possible people are often making these journeys with the support of smugglers who are able to help them cross borders and in terms of the people that are here in northern France I think a lot of people would stay in France if France was being kinder to them and there were you know were less issues with the police and the sort of violence and hostility that's here but also people might have friends or family in the UK they may may speak English as a second language yeah there's numerous reasons why people might want to make it to the UK and we have to find legal routes and safe and legal routes for them to get there because that brandishing stamp of someone being an illegal immigrant is entirely incorrect they can't there aren't any legal ways for people to make the crossing and claiming asylum is a legal right so um it's it's not possible actually to be an illegal immigrant but we have to kind of start really challenging that language that's being used by particularly the international media that's actually really interesting because i hadn't even thought of it in those terms of the language uh, that it's not possible to be an illegal immigrant yeah that's quite a, a complicated thought that i hadn't really gotten to yet and yeah it's just a right and now I'm not going to be able to ask ask you the next <laughs> question because I've com- that's completely got me uh, <laughs> yeah I think I think what you say it's really important to keep in perspective the amount of people that are actually coming and for me something that I think is very challenging is meeting anybody here who's come on the journey is they're all trying to contact their family back home. These are people who've had to leave their families, their whole home life. And to go on a journey like that, to leave your f- your family, your home, people, everyone says that where they come from is the most beautiful place. And to have to leave all of that behind, it's not that, I think we have a myth that people are always just see the UK or Europe as this kind of utopia. And it's not that, it's just that their home is probably their, their ideal place to be. Mm. Um, for a lot of people but it's not possible to be there my view on the political situation is that a lot of people are coming from countries that are 
uh, post-colonial and where uh, outside influences have destabilized that country. I mean, we look at the, the Middle East at the moment. I mean, since the early 90s, the uh, America and Britain and NATO and all sorts of different uh, countries that are not from the region at all have been in those countries essentially killing. And to me, killing just creates more killing and it's not a, a solution to anything. And so we're actually creating our own, this, this, this issue that we seem to have with people coming is something that to me it seems like we've created ourselves. And that's maybe a bit of a political point to yeah, make. Yeah, no, I mean it is, and I think there's there's two points there, isn't there? I mean, I think one, there's a really famous poem, and a quote of it is, no one leaves home unless home is the mouth of a shark. And I think, you know, absolutely, as you say, most people want to stay around where their communities are, where the language is common, where their friends and family and networks are. Like, you know, we have to really think, and it doesn't help this differentiation between what's a refugee and what's a migrant and what's an asylum seeker. They all have different legal definitions, but ultimately these are people that have chosen to leave home or often not chosen to leave home and are kind of being pushed out and that for me just warrants basic human compassion but obviously a lot of the world don't see it in that way um but the second is yeah ultimately you know a refugee is a product of a broken system like you know if we and we have to think about the more systemic issues that are behind this absolutely whether that's arms deals that are going on with russia that's funding you know bombs in Syria or the Yemen or whether that's you know the fact that we've invaded into countries that we had no right to be in in the first place or just you know climate change there's supposed to be a billion extra people on the move by 2050 and I would say probably a lot sooner than that and you know these are going to be climate refugees and it's probably going to be us you know this area of France that we're in is predicted to be underwater by 2036 so it's you know we don't have a lot of time and um, if we don't start tackling those more systemic issues there is nothing that separates us and I think that's that thing of absolutely the time that I've spent here and the time that I spend speaking with people that are in the camps there is nothing that separates us other than the privilege of where I was born basically and you know that's that's where that human compassion has to step in I think. There was actually a really interesting article that I'd come across a few years back and I'll see if I can dig it out from somewhere but essentially the gist of it was talking about how the uh, climate crisis had actually helped precipitate the civil war in Syria and it was because there'd been a huge huge drought there for years so the article the gist of the article was talking about how that had kind of uh, helped to create the environment of which there then became a civil war and I thought that's a really interesting point and we're going to be talking to uh, precious plastics project here later on as well and so it's really interesting that I think at the moment there's a huge movement that climate and migrant justice go side by side and so it's really interesting to hear you yeah it's just another that. form of like i guess intersectionality which is a fancy word of saying that everything's connected like you know absolutely you've got um you know why why people are leaving because of climate change you know social justice climate justice um gender justice you know all of these things are m- massively interlinked and we see them all kind of come together in a situation like what we've got here in calais Absolutely. And yeah, the idea that everything is is connected and that for me highlights the absurdity of the response in this local area is that instead of seeing it as an interconnected issue, it's a very become a very localized issue. And the response is just overwhelming security and force, basically. 
you were talking about being here and the uh, the how impossible it seems sometimes and the fact that we shouldn't even be here and it's a kind of mad insane situation so you've been here for for quite a long time so you said three years so you came mm. in 2017 2016 yeah beginning of 2017 yeah. in 2017 and in that time have you seen a great deal of change at all in the situation yeah honestly I think the situation is deteriorating day by day and it's really difficult to get this across you know I often speak with journalists or researchers or people that are coming across and want information on the updates of the situation here and it's how to emphasize that it is just getting worse and worse and worse and I think this is connected to the number of police evictions that are happening so this means that people are being displaced people are being displaced every single day the police are coming in and making people just move their stuff they're really arbitrary operations but this is causing the byproduct of that is that it's complete mental collapse and we've seen increasing um sort of suicide attempts psychotic episodes depression you know all of these things are becoming more and more prominent um in the field and I guess now that we know that we've got a Conservative government for the next five years, it's there's no sense of there being a shift in the type of response that is here from either the French or the British government. You know, we have French elections coming up this year, but they're also not looking too promising in terms of it not swinging more to the right. So I guess in one sense we're trying to find constantly trying to find our exit plans, but mm. there's more and more of a need for us to be here. And that's really difficult from our perspective. You know, help refugees arrived trying to be sort of fast and flexible and I guess not really knowing what we were going to get get ourselves into but as a response you know we're working to leave that's always the plan we're working until we shouldn't be here anymore and how now we're at a stage sort of five years on of reflecting and go what happens now when you're one of the sort of cemented actors in in this field and heavily relied upon by a lot of the other grassroots operations that are here but also yeah I guess fundamentally I mean a tent is a tent a sleeping bag might you know a wet blanket keeps someone um, a blanket might keep someone warm for a couple of nights and then get wet and not be useful anymore but that blanket's kept someone alive so yeah there's a need for us to be here and that's a really important thing it's really hard to see that for each of those individuals there's a story there and that actually you know one warm night might actually be the difference and so that's i think that's a really powerful thing that's still happening and it's yeah what, what else can you do and you yourself, you've, I'm staggered, you know, three years, I, I mean, it's a, it's a tough place to be. How have you, how have you sort of kept yourself going over those few years? Because as you say, you shouldn't even be here. <laughs> I shouldn't be here. Yeah, I was a bit backwards and forwards through the first year, but I've been in this role for a couple of years now. And I think, how do I get myself through? Um, I guess... I guess fundamentally it's like it's the other people that are here like someone once I once read like when you're in a sort of situation which is deemed to be a crisis although I would also question that word people just say you know look for the helpers and it's like actually you look around and there are just people everywhere that are wanting to help and I think it's this weird dichotomy that's created where you see the absolute worst of humanity every day in the way that the police and the state can operate here and the force of oppression and the human rights abuses on a daily basis but you see that opposed with the just the absolute best of humanity and that's kind of motivating so yeah I guess that plus Callie's got really good chips <laughs> <laughs> and a bit of sleep go for a walk every now and then <laughs> um 
yeah there's good people about basically i can i can certainly attest to that i've met so many remarkable people here yourself included and so it's a it's actually a real privilege for me i think to be able to chat to people and and help your refugees we can presumably find on social media pretty easily uh, yeah absolutely so facebook instagram twitter all of the usual things if you go on helprefugees.org and from there you can click on our volunteer in calais page and you can find out all the different ways to help so there's loads of ways to get involved whether you're able to spend a day in calais or a week or a month it will take you possibly to our partner organization indigo volunteers and they will say kind of the requirements for each of the projects that are here but you can come out just for a weekend to chop wood or chop vegetables and there's we give you all the information you need about lift share groups to come across and all of that sort of stuff um, and also we've got a needs list on there which we keep up to date every week with exactly what is needed in terms of material donations so we make sure that we don't get wedding dresses and high heels and the like donated <laughs> have you had those we've had literally everything like bumblebee fancy dress costumes and yeah you wouldn't believe the things that people donate into a refugee crisis <laughs> uh, that's brilliant and i can certainly uh, recommend coming for just a weekend as well because then you will meet all the wonderful people that are here and that's a really positive thing to, to be involved with as well so thank you very much Thanks, for, for for coming and chatting and when i do have these chats uh, with people like yourself it kind of um, I've got a smile on my face right now. That, <laughs> and I'm trying to trying to remember to do a podcast, but uh, yeah, that's that that fills me with a little bit of hope as well. And I think there are that's a really important thing to remember is that there is there's it's, it's there's lots of good people there, and it's not. It can be better than this. Like it can be, and it must be, and it will be <laughs> better than this. Yeah.